At this time, the children are dismissed for children's church. So if you are in that up through grade four, you can go on out, line up outside. That will be a good time. Those, the rest of us, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We are in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is, um, to many, one of the most significant portions of Scripture. Actually, uh, many people have, and many commentators would actually say that this is the Lord's Prayer. What we are saying is the disciples' prayer when we pray at the end of a, um, the pastoral prayer is when we pray our Father in heaven, as Jesus taught the disciples to pray. But what we find is that the Lord's Prayer, when Jesus prays, this is how He prays. Now, in the midst of the Scriptures, this is the longest recorded prayer that we have of Jesus within the Godhead praying back and forth. And what we find is that there's, there's great simplicity and great complexity all interwoven in the midst of this prayer. And this prayer throughout the ages has brought great solace to many. Um, Philip Melanchthon, who along with Martin Luther was the towering intellect of the early Reformation, said this about John 17. He says, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. When we think about um, these 26 verses in John chapter 17, uh, Thomas Manton, who is uh, Oliver Cromwell's chaplain, preached 45 sermons on the 26 verses of John 17. Um, 17. I will do so in a few less. Um, an Irish preacher, a recent Irish preacher named Marcus Rainsford, uh, wrote a 500-page exposition on this particular passage. But the one that um, I often find with John 17 that is um, comforting is that John Knox, who is the father of Presbyterianism, um, and you know, he is the one that we think about when we think about Presbyterianism, at the end of his life, during his final illness and in his final moments, uh, he would ask that John 17 was read to him every day. Every day he wanted to hear, how is Jesus praying for me? How is Jesus pleading with the Father for the world? And so in the passage of, of John 17, it's, it's, it's as if the, the Trinitarian... Um, union, and the veil that sort of covers over that is, is peeled back so that we see the Father and the Son communing with one another in prayer. There is a, a deep intimacy. We also find this, is that this is the hour, and, and that hour is a theme that runs throughout John. That hour has come. When Jesus says, my hour is at hand, now, this is the hour when he was about to go to the cross. And at Jesus' most vulnerable time, at the most difficult thing that anyone would ever have to do in the history of the world, what does Jesus do right before all of this happens? Is he prays. He prays to his Father. He prays for his disciples. And then he prays for, for you and for me, for all the subsequent generations of everyone who would believe. So this is a, a, an intimate passage. It is a glorious passage. And the idea of glory is all over the first five verses. Now we're going to pick up the first five verses today. 
verses one through five, but I wanna read all of John 17 so that we get uh, an understanding of what the whole prayer is about. So, having said that, let's read John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let's, let's pray. Father, as we, as we study your word, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would place ourselves underneath it and that it would be our guide, our tutor, and that we would submit our will to it, that you might take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And Father, as we as we think about the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father this, this morning, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would feel the weightiness, that we would feel the, the, the blessedness of, of knowing Jesus and the Father. 
So Father, help those who are listening to be attentive to the words that you have given us. And Father, help me to be clear. And Father, I pray that you would encourage and build our faith. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the idea that we find throughout this is this one of the glory, the glory of Christ. As a matter of fact, in in verses 1 through 5, as we come to this, we see over and over again that the glory is is what the Father and the Son are doing together. The Son is giving glory to the Father. The Father is being asked to give glory back to the Son. And so this idea of glory is very significant. So let me um, round out kind of where we're, we're going today, and, and it is in this way, is that, you know, what is the glory of Christ? You know, where is that glory revealed? And then, quite frankly, what are the benefits for the believer in contemplating the glory of Christ? That's where we're going uh, today. So the glory of Christ, you know, first of all, is one of the sub-themes of John's gospel, It is one of the clearest themes within the book of John. It actually talks about the glory of Christ 41 times in the Gospel of John. And when our Lord is most intimate with the Father, He is speaking about His glory, the Father's glory, as well as um, the glory that that the Father will give Him. Now, notice what it says. I mean, in, in the first five verses... You know, again, when Jesus, in the midst of travail, tribulation, oncoming persecution, and and the cross, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come. Now, just one small note in terms of application here. Wherever you are in the midst of your life, you know, whatever difficulty, whatever joy, the reflex of a Christian should be one of prayer. Like, if things are difficult, we pray. If things are joyful, we pray and give thanks to God. And in the midst of our lives, like, again, when you go to the doctor and you sit on the doctor's table and he takes that little hammer, that little rubber hammer, and he kind of hits your knee and your knee goes up and you're always surprised that it does, right? And you're like, okay, I think it's where, and you know, as, as you get older, it doesn't quite swing as far as it did. You know, your reflexes begin to, but hopefully as you age in Christ, your reflexes actually get better rather than worse. Meaning is that the reflex in the midst of your life should be one of prayer and seeking help, consolation, and and transformation from the Father in the midst of communion with the Father in prayer. There you go. That's the first sermon today. Okay. But we're not ready for communion yet. So, but the idea of glory. Jesus says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So what Jesus is asking is that glory may be given to him so that he may give glory back to the Father. Now, I want you to think about this term glory. And and this term glory um, has two different words uh, or different meanings. As a matter of fact, when we think about the term glory, you know, we think about Westminster Shorter Catechism, number one, you know, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, the difficulty for us is that sometimes we take terms like glory and glorify, and we use them on a regular basis, but then what happens is we don't necessarily know how to define those terms correctly. And and oftentimes the word glory and to glorify has a multiple uh, or a multiplicity of definitions applied to it. 
In the Old Testament, when we think about glory, this, this Old Testament word actually has this, word, this term weight or weightiness, sort of this, this heaviness, as it were. And we think about this in terms of worth or worthiness, you know, meaning we think about this when somebody might say, you know, you're worth your weight in gold, right? That's what you're worth, and it's saying that there's, there's this heaviness and the value added to who God is. And so when we think about the glory of God in the Old Testament, we're thinking about this idea of weight. And so this idea of weight and worthiness has these ideas around it. It's, it's those of honor and prestige and reputation. And so the, so the glory of God, you know, is... is talking about his honor, his prestige, and his reputation. That's what we see in the Old Testament in terms of that term, glory. Now, in the New Testament, what we find is that oftentimes we get this word um, doxo, you know, where we get the term doxology. Um, Its meaning is taken um, from the Old Testament, but it means in the New Testament, it's more like a shining and a radiance this, this emanating um, idea of the glory of God, you know, this, this glorious spectacle, as it were. And so in the, in the New Testament, we see that it's visible splendor, this idea of glory. And what John does, um, what John does is John likes to use this term throughout the Gospel of John, again, again, 41 times, and he wants us to be thinking about both aspects of that term glory. Not just visible splendor, but also this idea of honor and prestige and reputation. John Murray, and now I may have just defined that for you, but you're like, I still don't know what it means for me to glorify. Whoa, I gotta watch that. That does not glorify God. I'm not leaning on that anymore. All right. So, when, I, I, notice I don't lean on things very much. I walk rather than lean. So, when we think about the idea of glory, that still doesn't help me understand what does it mean for me to glorify God, right? Like, what does it mean that I am called to glorify God? Well, here's John Murray actually says this, and I think this is really helpful. To give glory to God is to reckon God to be what he is and to rely upon his power and faithfulness. Let me read it again. To give glory to God is to reckon God to be what he is and to rely upon his power and faithfulness. So there's this this idea that we think about the glory of God. And when Jesus is giving glory to the Father, what he's saying is, I want to give all honor and prestige and the reputation of who he is, and I want to manifest the splendor of all that he is. And what I want, to, what I want that to do is I want to rely upon his power and his faithfulness in all areas of my life. That's what that means for you and for me. So how do we glorify God and enjoy him forever? We rely upon him. We, we, we testify about who he is, that he, we reckon God to be what he is and to rely upon his power and faithfulness. Now, let me, let me back that up with some scripture here. We think about that in Isaiah chapter 6. Again, when you, when you think about Isaiah chapter 6 and we think about the Holy of Holies and when the train or the hem of God's robe filled the temple with all of its glory, 
When, huh, what's amazing about that picture in Isaiah chapter 6 is that the seraphim, you know, they have six wings, and with two wings they fly, with two they cover their feet, and then with two they cover their face. Because the glory of God is so bright and shining and radiating out that they cannot look upon him. They can just sing, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah, when Isaiah comes into the temple and and the, the glory of the Lord fills the temple, Isaiah has to avert his eyes because of the shining radiance of God, because he cannot look upon the glory. And again, he says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I'm surrounded by a people of unclean lips. And there has to be atonement that that takes place in order for him to actually raise his eyes and continue. But we also see that in the midst of the Apostle Paul. You see, when the Apostle Paul, when he encounters Jesus, when he encounters Jesus after Jesus' ascension, Again, when, when we think about uh, the incarnation, we, we think about the glory of God is being veiled to some degree. Because if Jesus in all of his radiant glory were to show up, we would have to avert our eyes and we would not be able to look at him. And in this way, we see this, um, we think about this, because in, in, in verse 5 of John chapter 17, 1 through 5, it says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Meaning that I took on flesh, but in the midst of that, unveil myself so that those who would see me would see the shining radiance of who I am and all that I am. Now, in the book of Acts, chapter 26, you know, the Apostle Paul speaks about his encounter with the Lord Jesus after Jesus was ascended. He says this, I myself, he's speaking this, um, he's speaking you know, at the end of Acts, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, you know, Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. You get that? That's who Saul was. And listen, and at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me. Now, if you're in the desert at midday and you look up and you see a light brighter than the sun, I mean, you have to avert your eyes. I mean, not only you know, my, my father-in-law, the ophthalmologist, would say, quit looking at the sun. If you look at the sun, you're going to burn up all the cones and re- you know, rods in your eyes, and you can't do that. But you can't. You, you're, you're, your face is averted from it. And the apostle, you know, Paul, who was Saul at the time, says, um, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saw, saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles." 
to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now that's Paul's you know, witness to King Agrippa. And he said, when I saw Jesus, what did Jesus look like? He goes, other than just a huge bright light and all of his radiant glory, I was like, who are you, Lord? Now, we think about that, um, that section of Scripture. We think about um, in Exodus chapter 24, when the, when the elders went up in the Old Testament and they said that they saw God, they really only said, when people said, well, what did the Lord God look like when you ascended the mountain and you saw him? And what they said was, his feet looked like they were standing on a road of sapphire. It was a pavement of sapphire stone. So here's what they say. Like, what did the Lord God look like? And they're like, basically, I don't know. We had to avert our eyes. All we saw was what he was walking on looked like a really, really bright, clear blue sapphire. That's about as much of the glory of God as we could take. Again, there's this idea of the glory of Christ being one of weightiness, of one that is, is revealed to us but also about who the the reputation and the character of God is. Now, what is the glory of Christ? It is the radiant shining of the very being of God. You know, when Jesus shows up, he reflects the image of God to all those around him. Now, what I find just fascinating about this is when you look at John chapter 17, and it says, you know, and when Jesus is praying, you know, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Or he's praying that the, that the glory of the Father would, would come upon the Son, the Son may glorify the Father. What is so significant about this is if you look at Isaiah chapter 48, it's, it's a It's a place where God actually says, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, where he says, speaking of the idols of the heart, he says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, God is not good at sharing his glory with anyone, with his honor, his character, his reputation. And yet in Isaiah 48, it says he shares it with no one. But in John chapter 17, he says, Jesus says, I glorify the Father, the Father glorifies me. The glory of the Father is also the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. He makes himself out to be God. He is equating himself to be the second person of the Trinity. And we see an intimacy there. Now, all of that by, by way of, of seeing that this glory is meant to um, encourage us. So, um, when we think about this idea of the glory, you know, some people will say, well, you know, do I really need the scriptures or do I need the revealed will of God in order for the glory of God to be revealed to me? Here's what I mean by that. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it actually says, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
You read that. I mean, we, we read about uh, that in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above de- proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So there's this, this beautiful aspect of the glory of God is certainly revealed to us in general revelation, specifically with regard to creation. I was, uh, I was on base a couple weeks ago, and uh, yeah, I'm a chaplain on base at Forbes Field in Topeka. And uh, I was inviting different people to the, um, the service that we have on Sunday morning. It happens at um, 9 o'clock. Um, I, obviously, I'm not there on most Sundays, but the other chaplains lead that service. And I went up to, um, uh, he was a, uh, another officer, and uh, they were getting ready to go shooting. And um, he says to me, uh, we're getting ready to go to the range today. He goes, that's my church. And I looked at him, and I said, you know that's not really church, Right. And he goes, well, it's my church. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really church, right? And see, what he had done is he had misunderstood the fact that, you know, he, he, he was saying, essentially, here's what he's saying. And I don't mean this in a bad way. He's saying, this is my happy place. This is the place that I go, that, that I think about, you know, just the things around me. And, and essentially, he's saying, this is my church. And I was like, no, you don't get it. You know, when people say, well, I don't have to come to church to be in church, what I typically tell them is, you're wrong. (laughs) You're just wrong. Like when we come as the people of God and we assemble in obedience to the Father and we come together to have our faith encouraged, to sing praises to God, to commune with Him in prayer, to commune with Him in the sacraments, all of those are the ways that we are actually functioning as the church. And yes, the the heavens declare the handiwork of God. Creation, you know, is a wonderful testimony, but what it also says in verse 3 of Psalm 19, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Meaning that there is no speech. There is a vague notion in the midst of creation. There might be majesty in the midst of the mountains, but there is not the revealed will of God as we get within his word, within the spoken word, as God reveals himself in Jesus to, to the disciples and to the world. And then we, as the people of God, have all of these things written down so that we might know who God is and what he's done. Now, how does Jesus bring about glory to the Father? Now, notice that he says, my hour has come. And he says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give him eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, there he's speaking about, you know, bringing people to himself by giving them eternal life. I mean, we think about that, and, you know, throughout the Gospel of John, we think about that when, when he speaks to Nicodemus, you know, a leader who says, you must be born again in John chapter 3. Or he speaks about it in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well. I mean, two very different people. You know, one who was a leader of the Jews and one who was a Samaritan woman, you know, the, the lowest of the low in terms of just caste system back then. And he's saying, you know, to one, he says, you must be born again. And to the other, he's saying, you know, I have water to give you. And from it, springs of living water will flow out of you. And what Jesus is saying is by eternal life, eternal life by believing and trusting in me, you will have 
eternal life and you will know the Father. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, in verse 3, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, in this particular section of Scripture, Jesus is praying for himself, and he's saying that, that he, would, he wants to glorify God. Like, his prayer in the midst of his own life, and I get this, oftentimes when I'm in tribulation or distress, I pray that God would often take the distress and the turmoil away from me. But in the midst of Jesus' prayer, Jesus says, I want to glorify you in all that I do. But the way that Jesus glorifies the Father, we see this in verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Brothers and sisters, what is that work that we see? We see it on the cross. Uh, David Wells, a theologian, says it like this. What we see at the cross is the white hot revelation of the character of God, of his love providing the price that holiness requires. The cross was his means of redeeming lost sinners and reconciling them to himself, but it was also a profound disclosure of his mercy. It is in Paul's words an inexpressible gift that leads us to wonder and worship, to praise and adore the God who has given himself to us in this way. You see, what, what Jesus is saying is the mission, the, I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, in Christ, there was no evil committed and there was no, um, there was no good work that he didn't do. His whole life, his whole life and all of his ministry was meant as the work of his father, so that he could testify, so that he could bring about you know, praise and honor to the name of the father, in terms of lifting up the character and the reputation of who God is. Again, I liked David Wells' quote because it, it, it talks about the character of God, that the love of God providing the place that holiness requires the cross was the mean of redeeming lost sinners and reconciling them to himself. You see, at the cross, what we find is this, this idea of the love of God and the justice of God coming together. I mean, some of you, you know, uh, love those movies, uh, Mission Impossible, as it were. You know, matter of fact, when I say that word even, like you have the music playing in the back of your head right now, Right? And, and I mean, and Tom Cruise probably dies like 150 times in the movie, really, if he was really trying to do what he was doing. But they're always given some sort of outlandish task that only, you know, you know, really, I don't know how old Tom Cruise is. Was he like 85 years old, but he still looks like he's like 40 or something like that? You know, but, but only he can do, like jumping off of bikes and things like that and, you know, all of these things. But, but when we think about like the most impossible mission ever, we think about how does the holiness of God and the love of God work itself out for our benefit and for the glory of God? How does he maintain his righteousness but also display his love? How does he welcome sinners, rebels in his kingdom 
into the family of God. And we see that at the cross. I mean, that really was what Jesus did. Jesus displayed the glory of God in that way. He, he glorified the Father on earth and everything that he said and did. Now, one of the ways I think that we can also glorify the Father is, is if you think about verse 4 in terms of our own life, in terms of what we're called to do, one of the ways that we can glorify the Father is by obeying what the Father has for us to do. You see, every commandment that the Father gives us is meant for us to obey so that we might glorify Him. When we um, love those who hate us, we testify of God's good love and forgiveness in our lives. When, when we esteem the things of God that the world hates, we, we glorify the Father by saying, we will not succumb and bend our will to the world's ways. We glorify the Father by obeying him. Now, the mission that Jesus had to accomplish was so that we might have to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, the idea of knowing God, the idea of knowing God through Jesus, propelled by the Holy Spirit. Now, what are, what are the benefits of that for us, right? Like, why is this a good thing for us to think about? Now, let me, let me go just over a few in closing here. What are the benefits that the believer accrues in terms of contemplating the glory of Christ? Well, how about this? Observing and pondering the glory of Christ will transform our worship. It will enlarge and expand our worship. It will make a different quality altogether. It will make, when we come into worship, there will be a weightiness to the fact that we are coming in and worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Again, when we think about you know, Psalm 24, we, we, the, the Psalm 24 asks this question, this conquering king as he comes back from, from ruling and reigning. This conquering king, and, and, and the words go like this, who is this king of glory? Who shall ascend? Um, who is this king of glory? O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You know, there's, there's meant for us to be this, this worship uh, sense in, in the midst of our lives. John Owen describes it like this. He says, make up your mind that to behold the glory of God by beholding the glory of Christ is the greatest privilege which is given to believers in this life. This is the dawning of heaven. It is the first taste of that heavenly glory which God has prepared for us. For this is eternal life, to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It is the first taste of the heavenly glory when we contemplate it. And as we come, as, as, as we come every week and we come to be fed. I mean, I, I liken even communion as being the appetizer for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. You know, we might 
eat bread and juice here, but there will be a feast laid out for us in heaven. And it is the first fruits, this, this idea of worship of heaven. Secondly, if we will think about this idea of, of glory, it will focus our activities in living and praying in the midst of life. When we are faced with ultimate reality, I mean, this is what we are made for. For what purpose for, were you made for? Brothers and sisters, we were made to give God glory, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So that when we pray, we pray that God's glory would be manifested. Is That we would, even later on in John 17, share in his glory, share in the glory of Christ, so that the glory of the Father might be expanded. Here's what I, here's what I mean by that. Is is um, the thing that, that gets me um, as a pastor oftentimes is that I get to be with people um, in very difficult situations. And uh, you know, this week, you know, Mark Winton and I had the, the, the privilege of going to visit Janelle Slater, Gary and Janelle Slater this week. And, and as I'm, I'm going to their house uh, with Mark and we pull up to their house and we go in, and I'm not sure what to expect as we walk in to the house. Because Janelle, um, at this point, is, is, is really sleeping all the time and not really responsive. And as I walk into the house, the house is filled with life and joy because of Jesus and the testimony of Janelle's faith about Jesus. I mean, I walked into the house, and rather than being a place of mourning, there's a place of comfort and peace and joy in the midst of this. And why is that? Because they're thinking about the glory that is to come. They're thinking about the glory that will come for every believer who has trusted in Jesus. They're thinking about their glorification. They're thinking about the testimony of faith that Janelle has had. Even three or four weeks prior, you know, um, I was over at Janelle's house, and in the midst of just spending time with her and praying with her, as I'm leaving, she goes, I have a bag of stuff that I want to give to the church that might help out with the respite ministry. This is a bedridden woman, you know, plagued by cancer, and what she's saying is, I want to glorify God, and how I can do that from my bedside is I just want to give these things so that people who are showing up at the respite ministry on Tuesdays and Fridays from 10 to 2, that's a plug for the respite ministry, um, that they might know the glory and love of Jesus. You see, thinking and contemplating the glory of Christ, the glory of God, the reputation and the character and the radiant, shining holiness and what we're called to do, it actually helps you know, give us an understanding of what we're called to be and how we're called to pray and how we're called to love and to serve. It also gives us a unity of purpose that we'll talk about in the upcoming weeks. The, the one that um, I got, this last one I got from a, a man named Eric Alexander, who's a pastor in Scotland, and he says this about the glory. The, the, the glory of Christ provides the missing motive for our evangelism. This is interesting. He goes, why do we evangelize? We might evangelize because we, we, we love the lost and we don't want the, the lost to, to, to die, you know, outside of faith, right? 
And he goes, and that's a, that's a good reason. We might also evangelize because in Matthew 28, we're commanded to. They were commanded to take the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, right? We're, we're called to do that. But he says, but there's also this idea of thinking and pondering the glory of Christ, that we are meant to want his glory to become greater and greater. We want the glory of Christ to be all over the world, his reputation and his holiness and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And we want the name of Christ to be exalted, and he uses this story. There was a, a missionary named Henry Martin, and he was a missionary from several hundred years ago. And he, when he went out to be a missionary, and he went to a place in, in North Africa, and what got him was he was brought to a place in North Africa, and he was brought into a, a place where there was a portrait, and everyone who saw this portrait was bowing down and sort of worshiping, as it were, the portrait. And the portrait was this. It was Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, and it was Jesus bowing down to the prophet. And the, and the Muslims who were coming and seeing that picture were then sort of bowing prostrate to that picture. And what Henry Martin said in the midst of his missionary endeavor is his friend looked at Henry Martin and Martin was cr t crying and Martin was weeping uncontrollable tears. And he said this to his friend, he says, I could not go on living if my savior was always in this way dishonored. If his glory was being diminished. He goes, I want these people to know the glory. I want them to know the radiance of the love of Christ and the mission that I have is to bring the gospel to them, the good news. And the good news is this, is that you don't have to be good enough in order to be saved, but rather someone else was good enough on your behalf. And if you will trust and believe, then you will be saved. And then you can begin to reflect the glory of Christ to all those around you. Again, he says, I could not go on living if my Savior was always in this way dishonored. Let me conclude with this, this quote. Um, Jonathan Edwards says, from time to time in Scripture, embracing and practicing true religion and repenting of sin and turning to holiness is expressed by glorifying God as though that were the sum and end of the whole matter. Now, if Edwards is correct, it suggests that the Christian life at heart is one of glorifying God. And if this is the case, then the specific way Scripture calls us to glorify God ought to provide important insight on the structure and priorities of that Christian life. So what does Scripture say for us to do? To believe and to have faith, to worship, to witness, to love, to forgive, to serve. How do we glorify God in all that we do and say in all of those ways? And again, we try to accomplish the mission that he has for us. Now, speaking of mission in front of us, we think about communion table and we think about this bread. This bread represents Christ's body given for you. 
And at the supper, he would say that this bread represents his body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he poured out the wine. We use juice, the fruit of the vine. And he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. That my blood is being poured out so that you might be forgiven. That everything that I do, this, this humiliation on the cross is actually my exaltation. This humiliation that comes upon me will actually be seen as something that glorifies myself, but also glorifies the Father. Because at the cross, again, the love of God and the holiness of God meet. So the cross is not something that we disdain but something that we are called to ponder, something that we are called to, to embrace. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read the words of institution. The Apostle Paul recites this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, this will always remain bread and this will always remain juice. But Father, you pour forth yourself spiritually upon us. Father, you show up spiritually so that we might be encouraged Encouraged to live a life of faith, encouraged to live a life of service, encouraged to forgive and to seek forgiveness all in Christ. So Father, as we think about our union with Christ and we partake of communion, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would pour forth upon us your love. And Father, as we come, Father, I pray that we would glorify you with all that we are. So, Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.